you know, that on average, it takes somebody 13 attempts to successfully stay sober. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, and to know that and yet to not let that enable you to say like, oh, well, you know, I've got another five before I get there. So. (laughs) I feel called out right now. Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Pickles and Vodka, the unfiltered mental health podcast where we talk about the things no one wants to talk about in real life. I'm Christina, your host, and before I begin this episode, I want to paint you a picture of (laughs) what I'm doing right now. Um, I'm sitting on my couch like I always do when I record, but I'm sitting in a really awkward position because... Basically, what's happened is my cat, Ruby, has been watching me get back into podcasting for the last few weeks. So, like, she knows now where I sit to record. And what she's done is basically take over that spot. (laughs) So, she's lying on the couch where I usually sit, taking up as much room as possible. And she's just too cute to move. So, I'm sitting, like, really far away from my computer. (laughs) My mic is plugged in, but, like... I have stretched the cord over to the other side of the couch and I'm just like holding it up to my face. In one hand, I'm holding the mic and the other hand, I'm petting her under her chin and she's so fucking cute. Oh my goodness. I'll, I'll probably post a picture for you guys. It's, it's adorable. Um, but anyway, today is May 2nd as I'm recording this. It'll come out May 3rd. But May is actually Mental Health Awareness Month which has been brought to my attention recently. And so I kind of wanted to talk about what mental health awareness means to me. I've always struggled with my mental health since as long as I can remember. I've always been depressed. I've always felt different from my peers. And since I was 13, I've been struggling with self-injury in one form or another. And uh, that turned into addiction like later in my life. But... I never used to talk about it like I do now. Um, I, I journaled a lot. Um, I was on Tumblr. I had blogs. Uh, I talked to online friends about it, but I never talked about it in real life like I do now. And I think the shift was actually starting this podcast in 2018. I was going through a really hard time and I didn't really have anyone to talk about it with. And I felt like I needed an outlet. So um, at the time, I was super into listening to podcasts where other people talk about their lives. And I was like, I can do that. So I started it. And it was really scary to start it because basically I was putting all this information out there for anyone to hear. And I'm actually less concerned about strangers listening than I am my own family listening. (laughs) Because these are the people that I'm going to have in my life that I'm going to see. And they're going to know that I talked about you know, my drug use and my mental issues, whatever. But I don't really care. Like, that sounds callous. What I mean is I'm kind of embracing it now. I think it's really important for people to talk about. And the only way that I feel like others can talk about it to me is if I choose to be vulnerable to them, if that makes sense. So, I've really been embracing radical vulnerability in the last few months, especially since getting out of treatment. 
I mean, even before treatment, I, I asked people to help fund my treatment for my eating disorder. And that was really, really difficult. And I don't think I would be able to do that if I hadn't been talking about it on the podcast for a couple of years. So I'm really thankful for things like Mental Health Awareness Month. I think you can never have too much awareness. I don't know if I'll do anything differently for it. Like I might make a post here and there, but I'm just always trying to make others more aware of my mental health, but also like mental health in general. Um, And it's really good to see people posting about it. I will say that. Today's episode is an amazing one. I know I say that every time, but I really enjoyed editing this one. Uh, My guest is Chaz Neal. He is a licensed therapist and the founder of Counseling for Mankind, which is a business totally dedicated to men's mental health and men's issues and destigmatizing men getting help, basically. Um, we talk a little bit about toxic masculinity and, you know, the normal suspects, but we also talk a lot about his own journey and how he came to be working in the field he is, what issues therapists face that they can't really talk about, and I, I really appreciate his honesty, and it's a tremendously helpful episode, whether you identify as male or not. I would recommend listening. <laughs> I, two years in, and I still feel like I have to like beg people to listen to this. Oh, Ruby, you have something to say? She just growled at me. I think I'm petting her too much. But yeah, it's a great episode. And I will launch into that in just a moment. But first, I guess I want to give you an update on my own personal life because last week I talked about how I was having some lapses in my eating disorder. And this week, it's kind of the same. Uh, I'm still struggling a bit with lapses. Uh, In fact, there was a point last week where I was like, is this a relapse? Like, is this what's happening? Because I'm having these lapses pretty often and I'm thinking about food all the time and how many calories I'm burning and like I can see myself really going back down that rabbit hole and I don't like it. But I think the way I've been dealing with it is just radically different than I've been dealing with it in the past because I've been telling people when it happens. I tell my my mom, I tell um, my friend Connor who's you know, from the podcast episodes before. He's my neighbor and he's a great supporter. Shout out to Connor if you're listening. Thanks for listening to all my woes. But um, I'm also signed up for several different free support groups, which I didn't really think that was a thing before. Like I know AA is a thing and like NA, but I didn't know that there's free support groups for people with eating disorders. And the leader of this group that I'm in for people with addiction and eating disorders sent me this list of like every day of the week and what groups I can attend on those days and they're all free and so I signed up for Monday Wednesday Friday I have a binge eating group I'm part of I have a dietitians group where dietitians talk to you about nutrition and stuff and then I have my addiction group so 
Um, I'm trying to keep myself in the world of recovery, even though I'm no longer in treatment, even though it's been a while since I've seen a therapist and it will be a few more weeks before I can get to see one, but I'm doing my best. Some positive news. I got my second shot of Moderna yesterday. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Um, But yeah, the first shot, I didn't really have any symptoms except for a little bit of soreness. The second shot, I felt a lot of soreness in my arm to the point where like I couldn't really use it. And then I did get some mild flu-like symptoms yesterday and today, but um, I took some ibuprofen and ate a nice breakfast and now I'm feeling pretty good. So if you haven't gotten your shot, I would highly recommend doing so. Gotta vax up before the summer. If you want to have a hot girl summer, gotta take care of your health first and take care of other people's health. Um, it's really important. But yeah, speaking of hot girl summer, I feel like everyone's going to be super thirsty this summer. Like mental health wise, <laughs> I feel like everyone's been so depressed for so long and so isolated that one of two things are going to happen. They're either going to like get vaccinated and get out there and like just be manic and hugging all their friends and sleeping with everyone or I feel like they're going to be super awkward and not really know how to handle social interactions anymore. (laughs) I kind of consider myself in that category. I'm a little bit of both but just the thought of like going to work again and like sitting at a desk and dealing with people is really strange. I've been doing a lot of stressing about my career and what I'm going to do next but I'm trying not to focus on that until I get to Virginia in August. So yeah, that's basically what's been happening with me. I guess I'll jump right into the episode with Chaz. It's a really good one and you guys are going to love it. As always, if you want to be a guest on the podcast or just want to say hi, hit me up on Instagram and we can get the ball rolling. I have a lot of great guests planned this summer. I'm also guesting on other podcasts, which I will definitely post about on my social media when they get released. Oh my God, Ruby keeps growling at me. Ruby, this is what you signed up for. Oh my God, I hope you guys heard that. She hissed like straight into the microphone. (laughs) Too much love, Ruby. Uh, anyway, happy Mental Health Awareness Month, and enjoy this episode with Chaz. Okay, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear Excellent. you. Can you hear me? Yes, oh, I can. there you are. Here we go. Hi. Yay, we did it. So how are you doing tonight? Okay, well, here we are. I'm doing yes. all right. It's been uh, like a simultaneously busy and also kind of chill day, so. That's good. Uh, it's all to... about balance, right? Yeah, happy to uh, finish it up with um, getting to talk about stuff I like to talk about. So, exactly. Well, I actually, it was kind of serendipitous. I I had a meeting that I had completely forgotten about earlier today, um, where I was meeting with a a senior in high school that was like an intern at one of my friend's clinics or something that wanted to talk about my my education and my path of you know becoming into the mental health world i was like oh well this is a nice little primer because i'm going to be yeah, doing some of this exactly. later today so 
So I know you briefly from Reddit and then from our introductory call. So I know what you do, but the listeners know zilch about you. So would you like to just start by saying your name, what you do, where you live, anything you want? My name is Chaz Neal. I um, am a licensed professional counselor and I provide therapy in Denver, Colorado and the surrounding area. I specialize in working with men and men's issues, including uh, burnout, symptoms of depression, also like emotional vulnerability and difficulty in communication and relationships. And I love what I do. That's all very important stuff. I feel like with men, there's not, it's not talked about as much, taking care of their mental health and like acknowledging it even. Yeah, oh no, that's absolutely, I would say, um, I'd, I think it is a part of the epidemic of mental health going on and, and honestly a big contributor of a lot of the various forms of most significant harm in our world. When we look at the areas that, are, um, that we're really struggling as a society, there's a lot of it rooted in toxic masculinity, in mm-hmm. men's inability to, and I, I don't want to put all of the blame on toxic masculinity because I think it's that's sort of a blanket term that kind of gets uh, targeted a lot. In general, I just see it as men struggling to feel their emotions, men struggling to kind of know how to respond to these circumstances where normal life circumstances that have us feel really difficult things. And if we're shutting down, if we're ignoring them, if we're avoiding them, uh, they're going to find another way to come out. Sometimes that's in aggression, which it could be aggression in a relationship, anger, outbursts, things like that. Other times it's anxiety attacks or, you know, other sorts of really intense emotional expressions. So um, I think the anger is the one that kind of gets seen the most and in some ways can be the most impactful on other people's lives, I should say. But um, yeah, there's, there's a lot there to unpack in terms of ways that us as men could be better for ourselves and better for others. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would be remiss not to talk about the shooting that just happened out there. It's talking about like timely circumstances. Um, are, are you doing okay? Like, like how are things uh, in the wake of that? It has definitely um, been a, I mean, obviously it's, it's an incredible tragedy. Yeah definitely felt the reverberation of it through our entire community. And I have also seen a lot of this being a motivating factor, this calling out for, you know, especially in the therapist community, like for, for people who can volunteer their time, for people who maybe feel like they're not giving enough back to the community to come out and say like, hey, I can, you know, I, I work in trauma and I can provide this service for people who need it, for people who maybe couldn't afford it in the first place. So it's, it's kind of been both. Um, I, I don't want to get too far into the weeds with politics, but. Of course. Um, I, yeah. And, you know, I can't, I'll edit this and everything, but like, I just wanted to hear your take on it just off the bat since it, it's fresh and it did happen where you are and there is a mental health aspect to it. Yeah, it's, I, I don't really know what, what to say other than just that it has been, um, something that that has really shaken the community, you know, as as it would any, but uh, this certainly isn't Colorado's first experience with really massive gun violence. Um, And in some ways, the community is really divided here. You know, there there are many conservatives in the state and then also these sort of pockets of um, liberal beliefs, Boulder definitely being one of them. 
but I think it affects all of us. You know, nobody walks yeah. away from something that happens down their street or, you know, 30 miles away thinking that it's no big deal. Yeah. Thank you for commenting on that. I don't want to bring the mood down too much, but I know it's important to acknowledge it's what's happening, you know? Yeah. So how did you get into your field? Like growing up was mental health talked about in your family? Yes and no. Um, I think I, I had a pretty uh, comparatively privileged childhood. Um, did you grow up in Colorado? No, I originally grew up in Pensacola, Florida, actually. Um, so okay, a, a pretty, I'm born in Florida too. Oh yeah, where? Jacksonville. I, I have yeah. one of my best friends is from Jacksonville. Oh my God, um, I don't associate with it. <laughs> but it's a fun little tidbit. I understand that. I think we all had to kind of find our way uh, how to differentiate from some of our Florida ties. That was definitely, <laughs> I went to school at University of Florida for my bachelor's degree and then finished that and I was like, okay, headed west. Where, uh, <laughs> where can I, where the fuck can I go that's not Florida? Yeah. No shame to Florida. Like I, I want to visit soon because I have a lot of relatives there that I have not seen in a very long time. And so, yeah, no shade to Florida. <laughs> You know, every state has their aspects that that people kind of want to get away from. And for some, I think to some extent, it just has to do with where you come from. Um, Oh, for sure. Pensacola is a great little city. And it was not where I wanted to to spend the rest of my life. You know, it's a a pretty conservative stronghold in Northwest Florida. Um, Some people kind of talk about it as it really being closer to Alabama than Florida. And I think that that's fairly accurate in terms of location and politics. But yeah, it was, what was the original question? Sorry, oh, I was how asking did I get, how, how did they get into mental health? Well, ask, I asked that, but then I kind of backtracked a little bit more and asked if it was talked about in your family growing up. Yeah. I should just I, let you tell your story and like step back. <laughs> it, it was in the sense that there was time and space to try and be with emotions, but it wasn't ever really anything that was taught explicitly. You know, I, I think it's really hard to talk to kids about mental health when you try and like not talk about mental health. And in so much as my my childhood was a good one and, and a relatively privileged one, it was also one where I was still subject to a lot of those same expectations and sort of cultural conditioning of what it means to be a man and and what that means for um, how we're supposed to feel or what we're supposed to feel. And also, I mean, I think it is relevant that I was born in, in Pensacola, that sort of Northwest Florida being a pretty Southern sort of area in that a lot of what I learned was how to be a Southern gentleman of sorts. And I, I don't mean like, you know, like, uh, you know, somebody that's going to wear a monocle and, and, you know, talk in a funny <laughs> accent, but. I was going to say, I pictured like some gone with the wind vibes. Going not on. quite that. Um, but there was a pretty big emphasis. I think this has been one of the big aspects of my own mental health journey. Um, a big emphasis on putting other people's needs first. Now, of course, that's a wonderful thing. You know, that's something that you would love to teach to a child. And I think a lot of the hangups that we have as adults are things that at one point or another started either that somebody taught it to us with good intentions or that um, we learned it and then over time it sort of warped. And 
you know, wanting to help other people is a wonderful thing. Wanting to put others before you in some circumstances is a wonderful thing. And yet when you start to think that that's all that matters, when you start to think that your worth as an individual is based on your ability to help others and put their needs before yours, then you can kind of paint yourself into a corner where you're not really getting your needs met. And, and that was definitely my experience as I kind of came, became the, the people pleaser, martyr, um, you know, I'm, yes, I have wants and needs, but like if anybody else wants anything else, that's more important than, than what I might want or need. So I'll just default to you. And that's not really a good way to live life that ends up in any way feeling um, like you. That's a recipe for burnout right there. Exactly. Yeah. Like, like you're, like you're taking care of yourself. You're cause you're not, you're not at that point, you're just not taking care of yourself. So I think that was one of the pieces that I learned um, and kind of had to unlearn. And the other piece, I think in, in part as a result of a relatively good childhood was that I kind of grew up with the mentality that I think we see a lot in like pop psychology or um, some of the, unfortunate areas of the internet that kind of talk about like the toxic positivity side of things of like, well, just be happy. You know, happiness is a choice. Wake up every day and decide that you're happy and you'll be happy. And kind of just like reducing the human experience to that sort of a level. What do you mean by pop psychology? Pop psychology being that there are websites and parts of the internet that like to sensationalize, um, aspects of mental health or aspects of psychology in order to be, I mean, I I think the result is that they're overly simplistic um, or kind of reduce a a much more complex concept into something that just, you know, has a, has a good um, headline and the, they especially like the toxic positivity side of things because they can use those sorts of headlines just to say like, Oh, well, here's the key to happiness you know, gratitude lists. Oh, gratitude lists are so great. They change your neurology. They're the, key, they're the key to happiness. Gratitude lists are wonderful. They're powerful and they do change the connections in your brain. They do change your neurology. And if you are struggling with grief, if you have a history of trauma that you're recovering from and surviving, if you are dealing with really difficult depression, gratitude lists could be a part of what helps. But it's not going to be the whole picture. It's not the silver bullet for any sort of sadness in life. So you're saying that meditation can't fix my addiction issues? You know, um, what am I even talking to you for? (laughs) I I think there are a lot of people out there that would say, yeah, absolutely. Yes, they can. And I think for some people that's true. I'm just kidding, of course. No, of course. It's kind of a funny thing that meditation, um, that you bring that up. I'm I'm a meditation coach. I believe so strongly in the power of meditation. But the piece of it that I think is the most impactful is that it brings what's going on to the surface. You know, meditation and mindfulness, focusing on the awareness of the present moment and what's really happening, our feelings, our thoughts, and sort of the underlying beliefs, if we can start to pay attention to those and bring those to the surface, rather than, you know, what we normally do being avoiding them, minimizing them, numbing from them, that's where really big growth can happen. But, you know, sitting on a, on a meditation cushion in front of a candle for 10 minutes a day 
and thinking that that's all you have to do, it's not, <laughs> not going to get you very far. Yeah, it, it is kind of like bringing a magnifying glass to your subconscious. Like it's, it's like, it's not going to fix you by itself, but it can be the starting point where you need, you know, you can go on to examine some of the things that are going on underneath. Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons that meditation can be so difficult and painful for some people is because it really does open the door to some of those aspects of ourselves that we have the hardest time dealing with kind of coming to the surface. Okay, so you are super smart and everything you're saying is gold, but I want to find out about you. Yeah. So going back to your childhood, you felt like you were giving, giving, giving when it came to like mental health. At what point did that start to shift or were you like aware of it being a problem? Hmm. Too late, honestly. <laughs> um, I, I don't think it was until I was well into my 20s that I started to recognize it and, and mainly in relationships. Um, and I think that's an unfortunate reality of men all over the world is that we often don't realize our, our mental health issues until we're in a relationship and it's sort of like reflected back at us. Um, but yeah, I, I started to recognize patterns and it was, um, yeah, a couple different particular instances that were kind of traumatic in their own right. And I, I sort of tracked back what had happened and how those events had taken place and just realized like, oh, no, I had, I had opportunities here, 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 and here to change that. Like I was asked, I had every opportunity to kind of create a different reality. And in those moments, I said, no, that's okay. You know, like what, whatever you want is fine. Like that's, uh, we'll, we'll go with, we'll go with what you say. We'll go with, and just sort of minimizing my needs, minimizing that gut feeling that I, that I knew Ugh. inside that like something wasn't right here. When you talk about ignoring gut feelings, I can definitely relate to that. I have been in relationships where there's just something wasn't clicking, but I was like, you know, this is good on paper. So I'm going to stick with it, you know, pushing those feelings down, but it all comes to light eventually. At least in my case, it did. Trusting your gut is a, is a skill. I think that I had to learn again. Yeah, well, you have to learn what it sounds like. First of all, that took a while for me. Yeah, I, I, I think it, it well, simultaneously trusting my gut. And um, I think the bigger thing was respecting my gut enough to say like, no, this needs to be like, even especially when it was an inconvenience to other people or when other people wanted something else to say like, no, this is what I need. And being able to sort of stand up and, and say that and stand by that. Yeah, for sure. It, it does take a lot of practice. So um, you went to college in Florida. Was your focus always psychology? Yeah, you know, I, I think I was pretty lucky in that it kind of seems like a straight arrow. I know uh, many people's paths are much more winding. I had a psychology class in high school that I took and I got like a couple weeks into that class and I was like, this is awesome. Back then, my sort of conception of it was that it was almost like the cheat codes to life. It was like, oh, like, like here it is. It's all right here in this book. Let's, it's all laid out. Like, this is what you need to do. This is how you, well, again, a little bit oversimplistic at the time, but like, this well, is how still, you're happy. I yeah. love that psychology being the cheat code to life. It kind of is. Like, you're not wrong. I think in some ways it is in, in the sense that it, 
it has the potential to teach us the tools we need to, to navigate those difficult situations. It's not like we can avoid the difficult situations. But yeah, that first class and I was, I was pretty much hooked. I almost um, decided I wanted to get into advertising. And then I kind of, because it deals with a lot of the same stuff. It deals with, you know, like what, what draws you in, what pushes you back. And then I kind of decided that like advertising was like using the same information, but like the dark side, like it was using that information totally. to manipulate people as opposed to using it to help people. It's funny because I um, just got out of a job in marketing and I'm, I'm trying to find something more in the mental health field now that, like you said, does the work for good because <laughs> with marketing, you know, it's all about trying to manipulate people and find out their deepest desires but like then twist it against them and it's all it's all kind of dark and i i didn't enjoy it yeah how, how can we use this information and turn it into money exactly yeah yeah and there's also um, you know a light side to it it's like you can help people really find what they need sometimes but i would say that is not the majority of the cases i think that's one of the hard things i actually well i think it's something that a lot of mental health practitioners in private practice struggle with is kind of having to play both of those roles the the person who helps but also having to get your name out there and having to yeah. kind of play a little bit of the marketing game but trying to not do it in a way that is manipulative when frankly there are a lot of companies out there that that care less you know that are willing yeah. to do it in the manipulative way and so trying to find that middle ground so you almost pick marketing but you picked up psychology yeah, and went forward from there and got my uh, my bachelor's of science in psychology from UF, and then uh, sort of a got little bit of a winding path. Got the fuck out of Florida. From Florida, I I moved to Colorado and actually started off at an organic farm through the Wolf program, the Worldwide what? Organic Farming like volunteer program. You basically go work on a farm and they give you food and board. Did that for a couple months and then made my way over to uh, a Buddhist retreat center for a couple months as well. Shambhala up in the mountains. What? What a transition. What was yeah. that like? The, uh... Well, everything. The farming and then going to the Buddhist retreat center. Like, what's the word? It's not a very uniform path that a lot of people take out of college. I mean, in some ways, it comes down to just being as simple as uh, my wife and I didn't, girlfriend at the time, didn't want to like pay rent, you know, put a lease on down on a place without having ever seen it before. Um, so that, that was a, a sort of a simple, straightforward aspect of it. So you guys moved there together and then like were, you were living on the farm trying to like, well, find a place. Uh, yeah. And kind of decided like, we, we kind of like this volunteering thing and there's this Buddhist retreat center just you know, down the road, so to speak. Let's see if we can do that there for a little while. And yeah, uh, made that transition. The time at the farm was honestly wonderful. We had a great host family. And I know some people have had not great experiences with other woofing programs, but these people were wonderful. It was actually just after one of the largest fires in Colorado, the Hyde Park fire. Um, oh, wow. So when we drove out to Colorado, we actually weren't even sure if the farm was still going to be there. Like they had been evacuated for the previous month. And it was like, well, we're just going to go and, and kind of find out. Um, sure enough, it was, but it kind of changed the framework for what we were planning on doing there because it was mainly just recovering from, you know, having been evacuated and kind of uh, helping them to get back to a place that felt uh, sustainable. 
Yeah. Yeah. How, how were you growing at the time? Like, do you feel like that experience kind of launched you into the path that you are on today in some way? I don't want to minimize it, but I think the farm time was really just a nice um, experience and simplicity, which is a whole other skill that I think, you know, is, is really valuable to learn, especially in our culture of really high value attention, you know, that, that we're kind of seeking anything to kind of occupy our minds and attention as much as possible. But in terms of like greater emotional growth, the farm was nice, probably not my, my moment of biggest growth. Um, Shambhala and then actually the like following, actually that's a, a, probably a, a good example of what we were talking about earlier with the gut decisions mm-hmm. um, happened later in Fort Collins. But at Shambhala, we spent about three months just wandering around, basically getting paid to to hike through woods for eight hours a day, and then uh, like an hour or two of meditation a day. And that was pretty intense. Um, yeah, sounds like it. And, and Shambhala was the, the Buddhist, Buddhist retreat. Yeah, the Buddhist retreat center. I think at that point, in some ways, I, that was what kickstarted my meditation path. And at the same time, that... I can also kind of identify as one of the areas that really reaffirmed some of my not so great substance use habits at the time Mm. um, that had started in college, kind of uh, ramped up in college. And then you would think a Buddhist retreat center would be like, not about that. And I don't want to give Shambhala a bad name. And (laughs) at the same time, at least at that time, there was a, a large part of the community that pretty regularly would you know just go down the road a little bit to the nearby bar had weed as a pretty regular part you know we we were doing all the things we were meditating we were kind of doing all the things but then it was like all right well it's 8 p.m like let's go hit the bar um so it was sort of this disconnection this this very disjointed kind of practice in the day who i am and then who i am after 8 p.m talk about a dialectical um Yeah, when you talk about um, reaffirming your substance use, do you mean it just kind of put a magnifying glass to the habits that were already there and make you kind of freeze and be like, whoa, something needs to change? No. Um, or did you think, did it aggravate it further? I made it all the way through Shambhala without thinking it needed to change. When I say reaffirming, I mean it, it um, persisted and perhaps ex- in fact exaggerated some of those, some of those mm-hmm. habits in part because it was a stressful place to be, you know, I I think the sort of the isolation, the like really high expectations. And and again, is a great example of how meditation doesn't help everything, you know, like meditation was great. And in some ways meditation can act as its own form of, depending on how you're doing it, kind of its own form of working to escape. You know, I never thought about it that way, but that's interesting. Do you want to elaborate on that a little bit? I think we can see meditation as as being a lot and being such a powerful practice. And also, if we're looking at that to do all of our work, you know, if we think like, oh, I'm going to sit and just focus on my breath for so long every day and assume that that's all that I really need to be doing to care for myself or that that kind of checks that box of being mentally healthy or being self-aware, then it makes it a lot easier for us to excuse uh, a lot of our other behavior that doesn't quite go along with 
that sense of self-awareness. It's like, it's oh, well, I was, like- I was aware so much earlier today. I can like go turn off now. Yeah, I put my time in, you know, off to the bar. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. So that was like what happened after that experience? Like, were, was your girlfriend at the time there doing it with you? Yeah, um, she was she was here for every step of the way. And I, I would I. I will own my own uh, my own faults on this. I, I won't put any of that on her. And you know, I think those experiences were stressful in their own way. We we had to move around a lot. We were there for three months and ended up like living in I think six different spaces because they just oh kept on putting us into a different place every couple weeks or months. How like was it a big area where they had like houses all over or like how how did that work? It's a pretty big space. Um, I know I'm fixating they, on the story, but I'm like really fascinated. <laughs> it's a pretty big space. They have a, a handful of different living spaces. For a while, we were actually in one of their like guest lodging locations. Like we were in the like almost hotel like space. We were in a group dorm for a little while. Uh, we were in a trailer for a little while. There wasn't a lot of consistency. And I think that was one of the things I actually learned very much so in that experience is that I I really thrive on consistency and routine and um, did not have much grounding there. So was there a time limit set when you would leave or like how did that work? Yeah, it was it was basically a three-month contract. Um, okay. We were like doing a survey of the land and so there's only so much land to get through, you know. Hence the hiking um, yeah. every day. Okay, what happened after that? So after that, was I think one of the darker chapters in my life kind of moving to Fort Collins and Fort Collins is a lovely town it's a college town and was actually voted in 2011 uh, one of the like the best place to live in the country and I'm sure it is and uh, with a bachelor's degree in psychology the only job that I could find in a full month and a half of applying was as a dishwasher and wow. I needed to pay rent. So I was like, okay, I guess I'm going to be a dishwasher at this pizza place. And I stayed at that job for seven months. When you want to talk about um, kind of reinforcing bad habits and substance use, the, oh, I mean, as, yeah. as I'm sure anybody who is, who is an addict or has any familiarity with the food service industry knows that that is pretty much a breeding ground for addictive behavior. Yeah, um, you're, uh, you're looking right at one. I worked in the service industry for eight years and uh, yeah, everyone is, well, not everyone. I don't want to generalize, but you know, it is a breeding ground for addictive behaviors and yeah, I, I can relate. Yeah. At the moment, I didn't really have any sense of it, but I think it was because I was spending so much time and sort of smoking enough weed that uh, I really allowed myself to be numb to the reality that I was essentially just you know, I would, I would wake up at, at two o'clock, get high until my, my shift at four, go there, you know, use more. And then of course people would be, you know, beers or alcohol or whatever up until close drinks at close and then, you know, go home, smoke more, go to sleep, rinse, wash, repeat. I'm, 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 I almost said I'm rinsing my head. I'm, I'm nodding my head emphatically because I can relate so much. Like that's, that's the life right there. Yeah. I, I think this was really one of the periods of time. I did that for about seven months. One of the periods of time that I honestly draw on most in terms of, 
I feel like having some insight into other people's experience with depression. And I mean, the way that depression shows up, shows up for me, and I think shows up for a lot of men is that feeling of just like a lack of purpose, but like life almost becomes you're like on autopilot, like a zombie, just kind of moving in and out of life, doing, going through the motions, doing the things day by day. But I didn't care. I had, I had no sense of any level of significance in that experience. But, you know, when you're using substances like that, it kind of feels okay. Every, I mean, everything feels okay. Nothing feels good. Nothing feels bad. Everything is just, eh. You're just kind of frozen in time. You're like paralyzing yourself in that moment. Yeah, absolutely. So Um, did you always want to be a therapist? Yeah. um, You know, my, my mom talks about when I was a kid that I was like one of the people that when there was family conflict or something like that, that I was uh, like a mediator and I'm the youngest of the, I only have one older brother, but yeah, that I acted as, as a mediator for family conflict on many occasions. So even all the way back then, and actually, as I'm talking about that, I'm, I'm kind of reminded, like there were a lot of instances, even back in high school where I was in that pattern of putting other people's needs first. One of the memories that stands out, I got a call one night at like three o'clock in the morning on my cell phone and I answered and it was a a woman on the other end that was crying and she called me by my name. So I like, I knew that she knew who I was, but I didn't have her number saved. I didn't know who this was. And I legit stayed up and like talked to her for like 50 minutes about like a circumstance that I didn't know. And uh, I found out later that I did know who this was, that, you know, if I had known, I would have made the same decision. But even at that time, it was just completely anonymous, just like somebody that called me and is in the middle of a breakdown and looking for support. And I was like, oh, okay, I guess this is, this is what I'm doing right now. Why, why did she call you? I ask myself that question. Serendipity? We were friends but not really close friends i think that's one of those things i i do kind of see that as one of those serendipitous moments that kind of led to me being a counselor and also as one of those points of evidence of like yeah maybe i shouldn't have like talked to a complete at what what could have been a complete stranger for you know an hour in the middle of the night just what are you gonna do hang up like you know she was she needed help and you were there for her and you maybe you just seem like a trusting person you know sometimes you can tell that about people without really knowing them that well like i have certainly had incidents like that where i've met someone virtual stranger and just i don't know if it was the face they could trust or what but like i feel like i could tell them things yeah i feel lucky to uh have that be something that people ascribe to me. I think that is a, yeah. a really positive quality is that sense of trustworthiness and, and in some ways just loyalty, you know, being, being somebody that you can count on to be there for you when you need it. Okay. So I have another question. Um, we'll yeah. get back to your dishwashing days and how you got out of that, but were you seeing a therapist yourself at any point before that? I always wonder like people who go to school to be therapists, like if they're consistently seeing a therapist themselves. I saw a therapist, not at that point. Uh, I actually started seeing a therapist, believe it or not, when I started school for therapy. And like when I started my master's degree, 
And that was the first time that I started going to therapy on a regular basis. I had gone to therapy once or twice before irregularly prior to that. And since then I've gone, gosh, to a handful of different therapists for various periods of time for various events. But yeah, at that point, not really. I just knew that this was kind of the next step in me getting the, the education I needed to be able to help people. I think I really would have benefited from therapy at that time in Fort Collins or even before then. Um, but sometimes it can feel hardest to reach out. You know, those, those moments when we need it the most, it can feel hardest to reach out. For sure. And as a man too, I mean, it's, it's particularly hard, I think. Yeah, it is. And, and, you know, so many of the messages that we receive as men are that we're not supposed to have those feelings. I'll speak for myself that, that I, that I wasn't supposed to feel depressed, that I should be able to work this job that was grueling and really difficult on my mind and body that I should be able to handle my drugs and alcohol and have that not impact my life. And all of those shoulds and expectations, I think really allowed me to hide from the reality of how much it was impacting me and, and continued to impact me for years later. So at, one po- at what point did you, well, A, go back to school for your master's, but B, like what point did you start kind of facing all this shit? Um, I went back to school for my master's degree about a year and a half well about a year after i left fort collins so i was there for seven months Um, and that was back in basically the beginning of 2014 that i started looking into the graduate degree substance use continued on even through a portion of my graduate degree to an ex- to more of an extent than I would have wanted it to. I, and I did work, you know, I, I kind of tried to minimize it, but I think the, the difficult thing about substance use, especially marijuana as opposed to other drugs, is that it can have a substantial impact, but it can also, it's, it's not hard for some people um, to be really highly functional. I got, I got my graduate degree with a large portion of it having me use daily. Now, I, I, it's not like I was going to class stoned out of my mind or anything like that. And I've I've never, ever done any sort of therapeutic work intoxicated. But it's still, I I think, something that we minimize is, you know, if I, just like if in some ways I'm an alcoholic, if I need to have a drink every day, even if it's just one, uh, I'm using quotations because I think just one sometimes can get a little bit conflated. Like, okay, well, what kind of drink is it? How big is it? You know, if I struggle to not use weed at all, even if it's just one um, at the end of the day, just to cool off after a long work day or whatever, that's addiction in its own way. And it still has a pretty substantial impact, even if I'm not losing my house, losing my car, not being able to finish my degree, et cetera. I think that's a really dangerous standard that's out there that you have to hit rock bottom with substances before you deserve help or before you need help. Because I, I know t- so many people who are quote unquote functioning addicts, um, you know, many of them in the service in- industry, many of them in the higher education field, just because, you know, grad school's fucking hard. It's fucking stressful. And those substances at the end of the day are looking sweeter than ever. Absolutely. And I mean, honestly, I think this is a, a broader issue. I didn't kind of expect to get into this today, but I, I do think it is a broader issue specifically within the world of therapy and therapists. 
that doesn't ever get talked about because if we talk about it, that is one of those things that can actually put your license at risk. You know, if if, like you can be reported to um, the licensing committee and have your license be challenged if there's any question as to whether or not it is impacting your ability to be an effective therapist or impacting your work. Now, at the same time, the work of therapy is work in which vicarious trauma happens on a regular basis, especially if you're working at a community mental health center or predominantly with people that experience trauma. It can be really high stress. It often is something that people who um, have either a personal history or a family history of addiction are going into for some of those reasons. So when we talk about risk factors, they kind of start to stack up when these are people that theoretically know the right stuff, but that can kind of the whole GI Joe saying of like knowing is half the battle is like, well, no, it's, it's not, you can know what you should be doing and still be doing the wrong thing or be doing. Oh the, my God. Uh, I want to pathologize it and say the wrong thing, but. Um, Story of my life. <laughs> yeah. Act, acting against it's your harder. Best It's harder if you know the right things. Cause then you, you're thinking, okay, well, I know all this stuff, but I'm still choosing the quote unquote wrong thing. Like what's wrong with me? It's, it's shameful and I'm really glad you brought it up because um, I, I've literally never heard anyone in your field talking about this before. I think it's something that, you know, j- just in the same way that people who have really high stress jobs in the financial sector or something like that, they are probably going to be more prone to substance use than somebody who works in a garden. But yeah, that that the job in and of itself, especially in circumstances like community mental health centers and other like high stress, high caseload, high productivity expectations kind of worlds, it's a high stress job and it really has a really large emotional toll, which I think is so much more than some jobs that can be really physically exhausting or that require a lot of intellect. It's, it's emotional energy that you're putting out every day. And I in no way mean to complain um, because I do love my job and love oh, the yeah. work. And at the same time, it's really easy to see how at the end of the day, somebody would say like, oh, well, I've worked really hard. I deserve blah, 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 blah. You know, fill in the blank with your, with your drug of choice. You are working really hard though. Like emotional work is work. And I want to talk about how you started tackling your substance abuse and also, you know, how you started becoming kind of an activist in this men's mental health field. Yeah, tackling my substance abuse is kind of a tricky question. I think for a long time, I just tried to minimize it and um, played the I can moderate game, which of course is a, is a fun game that kind of ebbs and flows and ebbs and flows. And you quit for a couple months and then you're like, oh, this time it's different. And I can- I don't have uh, a problem. Exactly. <laughs> and I think the way that I really created a shift was, you know, the times that I had previously quit and then failed to quit, continue quitting, it was almost like I wanted to leave it behind, like just pretend like it never happened, like I never used these substances in unhealthy ways and I could just forget about it. And that would work to some extent, but I found that if I wasn't actively participating in my sobriety, then I would um, eventually start to have some of those thoughts creep in of, you know, oh, this isn't a big deal. Maybe I can handle it differently now. And I think what has been different this time, and, and I, I guess I want to clarify, I, I am not completely sober. Um, I am able to use alcohol 
and have it and that's one of the really weird things about substances is the way that you know one substance can be one way for you and another one can not hold any issue for me personally i know everybody no, that's, kind of has that's how i am when i can smoke weed and it doesn't tempt me but like i can't touch alcohol with a 10-foot pole yeah like so yeah exactly i'm i'm kind of on the opposite side of the spectrum and it's also a funny thing because there's so much out there about weed not being addictive, about about marijuana not having um, addictive qualities to it. But it's it allows us to escape. It's emotionally addicting. It's emotion exactly, and so it's it's the same thing just with a different name. You might not have withdrawal symptoms in the sense of like delirium tremors, and yet there are withdrawal symptoms from marijuana. Um, so I I haven't really ever had anybody explain to me how there can be withdrawal symptoms and yet have it not be physically addicting. Well, first of all, you said if you aren't actively working on your sobriety, then you tend to go backward. Like, what does that mean for you to be actively working on it? I think the idea of, of active sobriety, even from just a single substance, is this sense of this is not something that I'm letting go into the background of my life, but it's something I'm, I'm actively engaging in and reaffirming every day. I think you can do that a number of ways. You know, there are so many sobriety podcasts out there or substance use treatment podcasts or workbooks or, I mean, AA and NA, I, I think they all sort of offer some of the same quality there, which is that it's something that you are keeping up with. And that during your day, you have opportunities to kind of like smaller opportunities that are easier to get through where you can reaffirm like, yes, I, I don't want to be using this substance. And for me, it was I would wake up every morning and say, well, I don't want to do that again tonight. But then tonight it was like a whole different person was taking over and didn't care what I said in the previous morning. Well, if I can act on that desire that morning and that afternoon and kind of have these instances where I'm checking in with people through chats or through meetings or through workbooks or, you know, journaling where I'm reaffirming that intention to myself. Uh, then when I get to that place in the evening, it's a lot easier to say like, no, we've, we've already, you know, knocked this uh, ball down the court a handful of times. That's kind of a shitty sports analogy. I'm not very good at that. <laughs> I mean, it's true though. Like recovery is not linear at all. Like sometimes lapses happen, but that doesn't mean it's a relapse or it doesn't mean that you're not working on your sobriety. Like you had that victory throughout the day. Just because you drink at night doesn't mean you didn't tell yourself not to throughout the day. I don't know. Yeah, well, I think it's something that we that we continually build on, and that's another. It's so complicated. Piece. It's so it complicated. is, and I mean, I think that's one of the hard things about being a mental health practitioner that also you know works somewhat with substance use is that you know the statistics, you know that on average it takes somebody thirteen attempts to successfully stay sober. Oh my God. Yeah, well, and to know that and yet to not let that enable you to say like, oh, well, you know, I've got another five before I get yes. there. So. <laughs> I feel called out right now. <laughs> so I mean, earlier you mentioned weed as not being physically addicting, but it's emotionally addicting. Do you want to talk a little bit about that since it's not talked about a lot? Yeah, absolutely. I think marijuana can serve certain purposes. You know, I acknowledge that it has some some powerful medical benefits and that it, it can be really helpful for people. I think it gets a little misrepresented in the way that it can help anxiety because I think it can help anxiety in the short term, but then yeah. can also um, cause 
worsening anxiety patterns and stop us from doing the things we need to do and building the tools we need to have to be able to manage our anxiety and depression in the long term. And that's kind of the bigger picture there is that it's, it's a numbing agent, right? It stops yeah. us from caring as much. And, you know, I, I think, gosh, I think it's a, a South Park quote that basically says that like, it helps you to not care. You know, if, if you want to be able to sit around and watch a rerun of a TV show that you've watched five times and like be totally okay with being bored, weed's going to be your friend there. Stop calling me out. <laughs> It's a good thing the office left Netflix. Oh, that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> I, I hear that. And, you know, to be fair, I have watched my fair number of reruns. I'm not, uh, I'm not yeah. excluding myself from that. I think the biggest change for me has been the level of energy and motivation and kind of getting both my evenings back and my mornings back. Because I, I would wake up feeling groggy. And I know some people say, oh, I, I don't ever have a hangover from weed. Well, I can't speak for that, but I definitely did. And on the mornings that I did, I would feel ashamed. I would feel guilty, especially if that was one of those days that I had promised myself that I wouldn't smoke and then did. Then that shame is kind of also caught up in that lie that I made to myself or that broken promise. And you know, I was able, like I said, high functioning. I, I was able to kind of yeah. get myself in a good mood and kind of get through with what I needed to do with my day. And I kind of consider it like, do you want the first couple hours of your day to be working on building yourself back up to a zero from a negative five? Or do you want to start, you know, already in the positives? Do you want to start your day already feeling good and just get to build from there rather than having to work on recovery? That's such a beautiful metaphor. Like, it's so true. It's like you're shooting yourself in the foot when you wake up and you're already negative, like you said. Like, I, I love that. Yeah, starting from behind before you even really start your day. So and then wondering why you, you feel like shit and why you keep failing your goals. And... and then the day is so much harder than it needs to be because you are mm -hmm. exhausted, because you're groggy, because you're foggy because you spent so much energy trying to get yourself up and going in the morning and then yeah. you end your day and it's been a hard day. And, uh, you know, I really deserve to go and smoke a bowl right now such because a it's cycle. been such a hard day. Oh my God. It's such a cycle. Um, yeah. so talk about your practice now and like your advocacy for men's mental health. Like how did that all get started? Well, I, I actually started off my, my sort of first iteration of private practice. I was partnering with my wife, who's a yoga therapist, working with female trauma survivors. And oh, cool. I, I love that work. Uh, I'm also, I, I mean, frankly, without sounding, meaning to sound cocky, I, like I'm pretty good at it. And I, I think there was a couple sort of things I had to acknowledge at some point. One being that the women that would be open to working with me are at a pretty particular place in their healing process that I could kind of act as a healing male relationship, but that most women aren't really looking for that. The second is that I was inevitably kind of having to justify both to the people that I work with and in some ways kind of to myself, my right to do that work and my ability to understand on a, on a deep level what the individual person was going through. And kind of reckoning with that, I did some soul searching, so to speak, and, and looked to my own experience, a lot of what we talked about today, and found that I 
you know, there are a lot of men out there that need help. And it is as much of a sort of un, an untreated area, a sort of another ep- epidemic of mental health that really is unserved. To me, it sounds like you're going to the root of the problem. Like the, when you talk about working with women and their trauma, like not all of them, but I, I can guess a lot of that was caused by men who with emotional problems themselves. And so to me, it, it, it sounds like right. you're just going to the root of the matter. Yeah. The statistic I heard most recently was 85% of female traumas is caused by men. So yeah, absolutely. The I do think there is truth to the idea that that hurt people hurt people, that it is our responsibility to kind of do our own emotional labor and do our own work so that we are able to tolerate those difficult experiences. Because hard shit comes up in life. There's no avoiding that. And if we're just planning on being able to suppress it until we can't anymore, you know, that's how we get into these cycles of violence or or perpetual shutting down um, and then exploding. And I think it was a combination of kind of looking to, number one, the population of people that I work well with and that I can speak to on a personal and individual level, and also the people who are seeking me out. You know, a lot of men want to work with a man who kind of knows where they're coming from. And I respect that too. Yeah. And that opportunity to really use my own individual experience, it was like a coming home for me where I, I don't have to qualify. I don't have to justify, you know, all of the content that I put out, all of the copy or whatever that to go back to our original point with uh, advertising. Like, I don't feel like I'm manipulating. I don't feel like yes. I'm trying to um, craft a particular story. I just talk about what I have experienced. And it's genuine. Yeah, there are a lot of people out there that really seem to feel similarly. So that's simultaneously a wonderful thing because I can tell that we are getting the message out of, you know, different ways to kind of look at masculinity and different expectations to hold ourselves to that are actually, you know, reasonable and achievable. And also there are still so many men out there that are really beating themselves up and tearing themselves down because of the way that they think they are supposed to be living their lives or the expectations that they're holding themselves to. Yeah. So, so when did you start your practice? I mean, is it a practice? Like, tell me about the business you do, like the services you offer. It's a private practice. Um, I do individual therapy and coaching, coaching being a little bit more skills focused. I kind of offer that as I would say in some ways an intro service in the sense that um, some men are pretty wary about therapy. So coaching can feel a little bit more accessible. And then I'm also uh, launching a couple, well, I'm launching a men's group starting in April, uh, just like a week from now. Oh, exciting. Yeah, that is. Tell me about it. So it's, it's, really focused on a lot of this sort of groundwork of what I think we need most. You know, it's working on skills to manage difficult emotions just on a really basic level, Uh, grounding skills, breathing techniques, things that when we're feeling that 10 out of 10 
sort of intensity of emotion, we can use these skills to kind of work ourselves back rather than kind of giving in or giving over to the overwhelming emotion, uh, but also to try and stop us from getting there in the first place. I mean, I think one of the powerful things about men's groups is that it gives us an opportunity to be vulnerable as a group and share with one another about our difficult experiences. And number one, learn that that's okay. You know, that, that that's safe, yeah. that our heads aren't going to explode if we actually share something personal that hurt us. Number two, that it is an, a practice of that emotional vulnerability and a direct experience of how it enhances our ability to communicate. Yeah. And just to know that they're not alone also, like I can imagine it's easier to, when everyone is in the group feeling these things, it's, it's easier to get it out. Yeah. You know, we, we also offer some other sort of practical focus in terms of, you know, skills to build healthy relationships um, and how to communicate effectively with your partner. I understand that relationship issues are a lot of the reason that men seek out therapy in the first place and uh, kind of getting back into these sort of cultural expectations the ways that guilt and shame really play in holding us back and stopping us from taking care of ourselves the way that we should be. For sure. Um, I want to plug all your stuff uh, so people can find you. But before I do, is there anything that you want to say that I might have missed? Um, any advice you might have for, for men who are listening to the podcast? Hmm. My advice for men listening to the podcast is that I think our biggest and best tool is awareness. You know, if we can start by just noticing what's happening and trying to pay attention to those instances, even if it's afterwards, even if you got in a fight or you had some sort of a, an emotional blow up or emotional shutdown, you know, something that you wish had happened differently to kind of go over the experience in your head and think about, you know, what contributed to that? How did I respond? How do I wish I could have responded? And just starting to identify those patterns of behavior, the ways that we sort of react actually more often than respond, the ways that we have maybe learned to react so frequently that it has become mostly subconscious. Bringing those subconscious tendencies and patterns into our awareness and into the, into the light is the first step that we have to kind of recognizing, number one, that we need help, and number two, that it's something that we can change. Totally. Uh, what are some good um, resources that you can point men to, including your own? Do you have a website? Yeah. So my, my website is counselingformankind.com. And I would say in terms of major resources, it's one of the simplest things. But if you Google an emotion wheel and you'll, you'll get all kinds of options in Google, but it basically just lists a bunch of emotions. And that's a good starting place because if we don't have, you know, what I would kind of consider that like emotional literacy, that emotional language to put to our individual experience. If all we can do is describe our emotions with grunts, um, you know, like, <laughs> how was your day? Eh. Oh, is that something that makes you angry? <laughs> you know, oh then... my God, yes. I just um, got out of a PHP program for my eating disorder. And like one of the things we did every day was fill out a daily intention sheet. And one of the boxes was what emotions are you feeling? And I'm, I'm pretty good with words. I have a handle on my emotions, but I struggled every day to put something. And so they had emotion wheels there where you could look and kind of see, okay, that word I resonate. That's what I'm feeling. Like it's, it's so helpful. I think it's uh, sometimes I'll, I'll challenge the people I work with, you know, try and name as many emotions as you can think of. 
like as many emotions as you would be able to recognize in someone else or recognize in yourself. And we have this conceptual sense of like, oh, I know a lot of emotions. But then when you start naming them, it's like, no, I know eight emotions. And yeah, looking at that emotion wheel that probably has a better part of 40 or 50, it really yeah. starts to blow your mind of, of how specific we can get in understanding what's happening within us. So that's a tool I give to a lot of people. Um, other sort of, I think, basic, really valuable tools that you can use on an immediate basis are some basic breathing techniques like breathing in your nose, breathing out your mouth, and extending that exhale to be a little bit longer so that... <sighs> I'm just like doing it here now with you. <laughs> yeah. And then... It's relaxing. Yeah, well, exactly. It's the exactly. simplest thing. You can do it in your chair right now. Everyone who's listening, try it right now. It's one of those ways that we can start to give cues to our physiological arousal system, you know, the fight or flight system, fight, flight, or freeze, that we're safe, that yeah. the anxiety that you're feeling, that the intense anger that you're feeling, that whatever's going on in this moment isn't actually a life or death scenario, and that it's okay to find that calm, to reconnect with that calm, because we're actually doing fine. Yeah. And once you are calm, it is way easier from there to, to go and talk to someone or get some help. Yeah. You know, you don't have to get down to a two or a three out of 10. If you can get yourself from an eight to a six, well, a six is a lot more manageable. A six totally. is something where you can, your logical side of your brain sort of comes back online. And so you can start to do some of those other tools that you know help, some of those other ways to calm or distract yourself. Totally. Um, do you offer any virtual groups right now? Yeah. Uh, in fact, all of the work that I'm doing is virtual. The downside is oh. that because of license specific stuff, I am only in the state of Colorado. Gotcha. Uh, so that's the limitation there. But all of my work at this moment uh, with COVID is virtual, uh, individual therapy, and the group that I'm about to start is also a virtual group. Nice. Well, um, Looking forward to hearing about how that goes. And, you know, if people want to go to your website, you said counselingformankind.com. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. Are, are you on Instagram as well? I am. Uh, Chaz at Counseling for Mankind, I think. And that's C H A S. Sure. That's right. Yeah. I can pull yeah. it up real quick just to make sure I'm not <laughs> screwing up my own Instagram. Oh my God. I've done that before. It's the most embarrassing thing ever. Chaz.MankindCounseling. I did screw it up. Yeah. <laughs> Good thing you checked. See, everyone yeah. makes mistakes, even therapists. <laughs> yeah, it's true. We're, we're only human. Well, thank you so much, Chaz. I will let you go now. You're a few hours ahead of me, so I, I appreciate you staying up to do this. It's been really fun. No problem. Thank you, Christina. It was a pleasure. Oh, I... What's with the pickles and vodka? <laughs> <laughs> you remembered so okay when I started this two years ago um I was an alcoholic and I was relapsing into my eating disorder and I was had a, going through a breakup all at the same time it was terrible and I was feeling really alone and like, I like I couldn't talk to anyone about it and that's why I started the podcast but anyway there was a night where I was just sitting on my couch with a mason jar full of vodka in front of me and then I was like eating pickles from the jar with oh do you have a kitty yeah, she's been so quiet this whole time. But I know, my cat's been now, so. quiet too. This is like the first time. Um, well, there you go. We've yeah. got a couple meows on the track, so we're, we're good to cool. go. Cool. That's what people are here for, right? 
but yeah, I was just like drinking the vodka, eating the pickles, and I just like started laughing because it was such a ridiculous situation. Hmm. Um, Do you kind of think of that as being like a a turning point or more of a just a very sort of stereotypical experience for that moment in time? I think it it was, it's very stereotypical of me, like as a person, I'm really open about my flaws and I, I have to laugh at myself. Like this podcast is all about talking about it and making people feel like they aren't alone but also kind of learning to laugh at ourselves because mm. you know humor keeps me alive sometimes Here's to uh, i think it's really important so yeah yeah some days we do we do what we can to just get through the day and that can kind of be enough yeah amen to that all right you have a wonderful night Chaz. and thanks again yeah thank you bye, bye. hey guys Thanks for listening to this episode of Pickles and Vodka. If you could relate to anything we talked about, you can follow the podcast at Pickles and Vodka Podcast on Instagram, on Facebook by typing in Pickles and Vodka Podcast. You can also email me at picklesandvodkapodcast at gmail.com if you have any stories or if you just want to say hi. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you guys have a wonderful week. Stay safe.